Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vos. This is episode number 16 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about Farscape Season 1 on your They Do Not Have Chocolate podcast. We're going to be talking about a full season of a TV show today. There are a number of TV shows on the big list of things I haven't seen, alongside a lot of movies. Doing these episode by episode is going to take a really long time, so we've been trying to figure out the best way to incorporate these shows into Pop Culturally Deprived. We tried once before, thinking that we would just do the pilots of the TV shows until we found a show I really wanted to stick with, and we actually recorded an episode about the pilot of Parks and Recreation. However, the format doesn't quite work the way we wanted. Um, Parks and Recreation's pilot is really not that great, and the whole first season of that show is pretty poor. Pilots from other shows uh, also aren't usually a good indication of what the show itself will become. Plus, I was really ill for recording that episode, so I made sure to be uh, that I was medicated to get through it, and then when we listened back, I- I'm more than a little loopy for the whole thing. You guys, it's incredibly funny. It may be the silliest episode we've ever done, and it has a gag reel at the end of it, which makes me <laughs> laugh every time. We will make it available as a bonus episode at some point in time, because seriously, you guys, you're going to like it. So Matthew and I talked about how we were going to deal with TV since that didn't really work. And so we decided that we would have a regular episode about TV each month, giving us time to watch and discuss a whole season of a show. If it's good, we'll stick with it for the rest of its run. So we are very happy to introduce the first episode of Pop Culturally Deprived's Third Tuesday Television. On the third Tuesday of every month, we'll be talking television, looking at characters, key episodes, and what we did and didn't enjoy. We'll let you know what we're going to watch so you can watch along. Farscape was chosen to kick it off because there was a lot of chat about it and GIF usage on Twitter, so it seemed the most... (laughs) GIF usage on Twitter, so it seemed the most exciting to go with. I had never watched Farscape in my whole life. Because, you guys, I didn't know that Farscape was a show that existed. Um, I was thinking, whenever we started putting this episode together, that, that Matthew was the one who actually suggested it for the list. But he's very adamant that it wasn't him. So that means one of you guys did. Uh, because I <laughs> didn't... I, I don't know who it was, but I did not know the show existed before I started talking publicly about this podcast. I was shocked at how many people were actually familiar with the show since I had never heard of it. I really thought I was knowledgeable about what's on TV. I'm very pop culturally deprived when it comes to movies, but generally speaking, I've seen a lot of TV. And even if I haven't seen it, I usually at least know about it. So to find a show that I had no idea existed was pretty exciting. So your subconscious knew the quality that was out there and just added it for you? Sure, let's go with that. (laughs) Um, For me, Farscape is pretty much my favorite TV show. Um, we, we will mention and reference uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Mad Men, Angel, The West Wing, Third Rock from the Sun. There's, there's a lot of TV that I think is superb and that I love watching. Farscape is the one that actually excites me when I think about it. When I think of some of the shows that are to come, even some of the shows we're talking about from season one, there's so much quality in there. And I go, oh, I can't wait until we get to I can't wait until this happens. And even incidental episodes that aren't necessarily of the highest quality, they all have moments that you'll still enjoy, that you'll still look forward to in that episode. So uh, there's not too much that's skippable, and there's a lot of fun that happens throughout it. 
Uh, we're going to get into a lot more detail as we go through the seasons and talk about some of the stuff that really excites me. But but yeah, I'm really excited to be doing this. So basically, Farscape is to you what Buffy is to me. Yeah, I, I think that's probably appropriate. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm going to run through the history and production info. Obviously, we didn't want Mandy to be doing this in case she picks up any spoilers as we go. Farscape is a uh, TV series that debuted in 1999, first on Australian TV, then in the US on the Sci-Fi Channel, and then on BBC2 in the United Kingdom. It was developed by Rockney S. O'Bannon and Brian Henson. Yes, of Jim Henson fame. Jim Henson's son, in fact. The show was produced by an Australian channel, The Nine Network, and filmed in Australia. Nearly the entire cast originates from Australia and New Zealand, with the uh, only real exception being Ben Browder, who is from Memphis, Tennessee. Season 1 runs for 22 episodes, and it becomes more serialised as the season develops, with a lot more overarching plots that start impacting every episode by the season's end. The Jim Henson Company was one of the producing partners. They wanted to showcase their skills over and above what they were doing for The Muppets, Sesame Street, and other Henson productions. They worked extensively on Farscape's, one of Farscape's most enduring elements, the use of puppets. They created fully realized puppets who are lip-synced, who interact directly with the live actors. We'll, we'll have more on this as we discuss the characters, but it, it's one of the points that people always pick up on in the show. It's hard to give a brief synopsis for a 22-episode season. Uh, the Which main... is why I'm not doing it, and Matthew is. <laughs> the, the main plot follows uh, IASA astronaut John Crichton. He is running an experiment in space to test going at uh, super-fast speeds by bouncing off a, a planet's atmosphere and doing a slingshot around it in his Farscape module. On the pilot test going around the Earth, he is sucked through a wormhole and becomes lost in a distant part of the universe. When he comes out of the wormhole, he hits a ship. He comes out in the middle of a battle, in fact, and uh, an X-Wing type ship flies past him and clips him and flies into an asteroid. He's pulled aboard one of the main large ships, which is, uh, we find out, called Moya, a living ship. And it was used as a prisoner transport, and the prisoners are broken free and are trying to escape. The other characters uh, in the show are the prisoners and one of the uh, sort of evil empire type characters, Aaron Sun, who was a peacekeeper. And the show follows them trying to escape from the commander, Crace, who was in charge of the, the peacekeeper squadron in the battle. And it turns out the ship that hit Crichton and bounced into an asteroid was his brother. So Crace is hunting down John Crichton across the galaxy. They go through lots of adventures and we have lots of discoveries about their past, why these people were in, were in prison, some of the things they've been through over the years. And then it culminates at the end of the season with a new bad guy being introduced, Scorpius, who is also researching wormholes and finds out that John has all the knowledge because of a mid-season interaction with another species who has given him the knowledge but hidden it deep within uh, the recesses of, of his mind. Matthew, how did you watch the show, If since it's your absolute favorite show? Uh, I own it on Blu-ray, so I watch my Blu-ray DVDs. Um, I have owned it on... When they first released it on DVD, um, they released it as two DVD box sets. So two, two discs per box set, which were each in their own normal DVD case. So you had effectively two cases that had four episodes across those two. So you would have something like 10 discs across 10 
actual cases to make up the whole season. So by the time the show originally finished, I had two shelves worth of just four seasons of this one series. <laughs> they then re-released them on DVD as the consolidated box sets, much more, uh, much smaller. Not quite to the size like Buffy and Angel get to, but much, much smaller. So I bought them and replaced them to save some shelf space. And then a year or two ago, I picked up the Blu-ray editions. So I've worked through them. I would actually be really curious to see these on Blu-ray because I watched them on YouTube. Oof, what? I, we did find um, one user who had uploaded all of them in, in fairly high quality for, for YouTube, but it was still YouTube. So I, I would actually be really interested in seeing the quality of the Blu-ray. Yeah, it's available on some of the streaming services, um, or it has been rather, but Netflix appears to be cutting back on a lot of its genre TV. Obviously, the X-Files and Buffy and things have disappeared. Oh, yeah. I mean, I looked for it everywhere. It wasn't mm. It wasn't available to stream anywhere that I could find. Yeah. I could have purchased the, the box set, but I couldn't find it to stream digitally anywhere. Yeah. And, except for YouTube, which was very lovely because YouTube is free. <laughs> So, Mandy, going into this, what were your expectations for Farscape? Well, considering it was a show that I had absolutely no idea existed, I really had no expectations because I didn't even know what it was about. I knew it was sci-fi and had aliens, but I didn't know what the story was about. I didn't know who any of the characters were. So I went I went into this one 100% blind. Terrific, which might be a, a good way to go into it. What is your experience of other sci-fi TV shows? You say you're you're quite pop culturally replete when it comes to other things. I really like sci-fi, especially sci-fi TV. I've seen uh, all of TNG and Voyager. I've seen the Battlestar Galactica reboot, Firefly, of course, even though that was recent for the show. Uh, <laughs> the only Stargate I've seen is Stargate Atlantis, but I loved it and I've watched it a couple of times and I actually own that one on DVD. Um I know I haven't seen as much as everybody else, but it does tend to be a go-to genre for me. And, of course, those are all space sci-fi, and sci-fi is more than just space. So when we get into non-space sci-fi, I'm a little more well-balanced. You know, Buffy and Angel, The 100, Twilight Zone, Orphan Black, Doctor Who, which kind of counts as space, but really doesn't. It barely counts as (laughs) sci-fi. It's more sci-fi than Buffy is. It's fantasy. <laughs> grumble, grumble, Doctor Who. <laughs> so, I mean, I do really, really like sci-fi TV. It's just, there's so much of it out there that it's impossible to watch all of it. Yeah, sci-fi shows uh, tend to run for a very long time. And, and the one that particularly ties into this is Stargate SG-1, which itself ran for about 10 seasons. But our two main characters, uh, John Crichton and Neron Sun, are played by Ben Browder and Claudia Black. And they actually ended up working together on Stargate SG-1 and having a number of Farscape references and things happen in the shows. A little bit like um, on Castle, the way that Nathan Fillion quite often references uh, speaking Chinese or, or works with actors that he's worked with before. It's got, got something of that vibe to it. I really need to watch Castle. I think I really need to watch SG-1, too, because I'm pretty sure I would like it with as much as I liked Atlantis, and I do like sci-fi, so I probably should. I think I did. Eventually, at some point, I watched the original Stargate movie, but only the first one, and it was weird because none of those characters are characters that went on to be in the show. 
Yeah. Or I guess the actors. The characters were the same. Yeah. The actors yeah. were different. So, yeah, I should probably put that on the list. SG1, I've not seen all of. It was quite big. And on on over here on BBC2, like Farscape, turn of the millennium. And then I started working full time. And it was on at exactly the time when um, I, because I started doing quite late shifts, because everyone knows I'm not a morning person. Um, <laughs> so I ended up not being able to see probably something like season four of SG1 onwards. And I know it got really good. It got in some quite good uh, proper space sci-fi stuff. Um, so I've never I've never gotten to finish it. Hmm. All right, we'll so, have to think about that. Mm, particularly, uh, I just wanted to watch the Farscape references. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get into a lot of conversation, but Mandy, did you enjoy Farscape Season 1? I did. It was so good. I was pretty hooked from the pilot, which is shocking, honestly. What is there anything that jumps immediately to you that you go, oh, that's a thing I like about it? Um, John Crichton is sassy. <laughs> and I like it. I like he's confident, confident and mm. competent and clever and sassy. And he can just roll with the punches. You know, he didn't cower and just like fall down in terror whenever he got thrown into this whole new universe that he never even knew existed <laughs> and I, I mean you'll you'll see some of this you know like in in the episode the human reaction you know we kind of get to mm. see what the, the normal human reaction would be to creatures like rigel and dargo and john Crichton didn't react that way and so it just made me love him it was great terrific Th- there's a difference between the season itself and your opinion of the show so what's your opinion of this as a season that has character introductions, character arcs, story arcs? I think it did have its ups and downs. Not every episode was a good episode. But overall, you know, it, it had more ups than downs. And it it was pretty solid for a first season. It was it was a better first season than Buffy's first season, honestly. Mm. Um when mm. you when you look at it as a whole. And I just have to say, when a show can make me have feelings for a puppet doing something right do, do you mean feelings oh god i love rigel he's so great i don't like rigel he's so annoying both both <laughs> oh my god i mean rigel i hate rigel he is he, i can't call him a terrible human being because he's not a human being but he is terrible, a terrible little shit <laughs> and but there were times where I felt sorry for him and like he was adorable sometimes and cute and and then other times he's just so obnoxious and infuriating and for a puppet to engender those kinds of reactions in me pretty spectacular I think. Yeah, the the puppets for me uh, uh, I talked about them at the beginning being one of the most enduring things. There's something about the fact the aliens are genuinely alien. Yeah. Because we're so used to the the Star Trek bumpy forehead thing, or, or or vague differences in in height and stature and so on, but they're still largely mammalian bipeds. And in this, you have uh, Rigel, who's this small floating frog type dude. You have Pilot, this giant-headed puppet, but he's massive and he's got four arms. And that's like ten people working him on on some of the big episodes. Um, I think in the first episode, you have that giant sort of. I don't know, it's a bug of some sort <laughs> in the marketplace, bartering with Rigel. You've got these two puppets 
but they are genuinely alien aliens. And I love that. Most of them are. I mean, we do have the Sebastians who are yeah. indistinguishable from humans just from looking at them. They do go over a lot of the biological and physiological differences between mm. the two, but I mean, come on. Yeah, they're basically human. They're basically human. Yeah. And, they're, and, they're, when the makeup team are overworked, we just cast the Sebastians. Yeah. <laughs> and until close to the end of the season, I would have said the same thing about Zahn and the Delvians. Yeah. But then there was some new information brought to light about, about the, Del- the Delvians and and what they are. Go on. You guys, the Delvians are plants. They are plants. <laughs> They're people who evolved from plants. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it's hinted and, at. It is hinted at. You know, I, I didn't get it, though. In, in that one episode, I don't remember which one, what the name of it was. But they were on the planet with all of the solar flares, and Zan, Zan is just like <laughs> writhing in the sand because the solar flares are giving her essentially orgasms. Photogasms. <laughs> yes, photogasms, <laughs> but essentially they're orgasms. And it was just kind of unbelievable at that point. Like, I didn't understand because we didn't know, but they were, of course, hinting. Mm. Um, and later, for, for the later story, and <sighs> she's a plant. That's all I got. She's a plant. And it doesn't mean a huge amount. She's still a biped. She still talks and looks largely human-esque. But it's just a nice little difference. It's just something that you wouldn't normally get from a Star Trek-type series. Yes. Mm. I reached out on Twitter through the uh, Eloquent Gushing Twitter account to ask for other people's thoughts on Farscape. Um, And we got a few really, really nice bits of feedback. Gen Girl, Lean and Mean. She said that it's the best, weirdest, craziest, most beautiful show. Um, The relationship specifically, she really loves them. Uh, The found family aspect is one of her favorite elements and the the undying hope of the show. There's nothing they can't overcome and particularly together. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Of course, I've only seen season one so far, but the found family thing. If you guys listen to the Firefly episodes, you know how much I love found family. Mm. And we got that same thing even maybe done a little bit better in Farscape than it was done in Firefly. And it just, it makes my heart happy. Yeah. It's, it's done in in a very similar way to Firefly uh, because it's around them uh, in the one episode being at the dining table and they're bickering at the beginning of the episode. And then by the end of it, they're all happy and sharing and and having jokes with each other, but it, because they've overcome something as a group. But it just it works so much more nicely because different characters interact much more. You don't always have the same pairings or the same group of people doing the same stuff. Right. We had a really great comment from Just, uh, Josh Ruckus who said they really like the diary idea, uh, the way it provides exposition. Uh, John manages to convey the awe and freak out of what he's seeing, but without having to have another human there to necessarily talk to. And what this is, is that he has a, a little dictaphone uh, IASA tape recorder. And as the episodes go on, every so often you see him sat there dictating some sort of message to his dad and talking about what's going on and his thoughts on it. And it, it, it absolutely right. It's such a lovely way to give us some of that insight, whilst occasionally being a bit of a plot element as well. We also heard from Jean E., uh, who said that she loved the characters. Uh, so I asked what some of the favourite characters were. Uh, the, the top three, I think I actually asked for. And they came back with Dargo, Pilot and Scorpius. Particularly for the, the latter being a consistently varied and compa- compelling antagonist. 
Well, I guess I know Scorpius is sticking around. Because <laughs> Scorpius is only in like three episodes of season one. Yeah. And and his introduction is something of a turning point. It was a weird introduction, though, because mm. he was just there. Mm. They never explain who he is, what he's doing, why he has a high command in the Sebastian peacekeeper army or whatever. He's just there being a jerk. <laughs> but he's not. That's, that's We'll get more into the, the character discussion later. Um, but his introduction okay. for me is, is one of the great moments of the show. Where, where it starts di- diverging from the norm of what we've had before. Okay. Um, just to wrap up, the last bit of feedback we had was from Ricky Manning, who came back with a one-word answer of meh, hashtag Farscape, which I guess means he's not really a fan, but it's strange because his name's so like Richard Manning, who was one of the writers and producers of Farscape. <laughs> So it is. I'm kidding, you guys. Um, it was really nice of him to, to just pick up on us talking about this. And he's doing his own watch-along at the moment uh, because it's uh, only just been the anniversary of Farscape. So he started doing a, a watch-along of his series. Uh, for those of you who aren't aware, Richard Manning was a consulting producer for season one and then an executive co-producer for the rest of the run of the show. Mm. He even wrote... And he tweeted at us, you guys. <laughs> we were very excited. Um, she squeed, guys, you know. <laughs> there may have been some flailing. <laughs> um, he even wrote one of my favorite episodes coming up in season two, so that's quite exciting. Uh, Mandy Mandy had a bit of back and forth and actually asked for some of his thoughts on season one favorite moments. Um, it was a lovely comment of so many fun moments living in Sydney and working with all the wonderful, friendly, talented people. And for me, that really comes across on screen. We've just touched on found family, but you do get a real sense of these people enjoying what they're doing and enjoying working together. Absolutely. It, it looks like they are genuinely having fun. And a- along with all of the, the character growth that, that you see and how the relationships evolve on the screen, it just, you can, be- you believe it, the way that they interact with each other. You believe that they genuinely come to really care about each other. Mm. So it would be worth having a bit of discussion about uh, the actual characters of the show. Uh, We've said that some of them we really like, some of them we don't like, but that's good because they're provoking a reaction. So we're going to run through the list of them. Some we have more or less to say on. Um, John Crichton, our series series protagonist, the main man. You said you like Crichton, you like the way he comes across and he doesn't balk at what he has to do or, or suddenly being enthroned to this environment. That is true. I do. I, I don't know that he's my favorite character. I think he's intended to be because he's the quote unquote main character, mm-hmm. and and generally that is who I always that that's going to be my go to favorite in in most shows that I watch. Mm. But there's so many good characters. It's it's hard to narrow it down. I think. But <laughs> but John, he's clever and he's sassy and he's the William Riker of Moya. <laughs> I mean, how do you not like him? It's great. <laughs> you, you, are you saying that because he gets off with all the alien women? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but he's also got a lot about him. He does. Yeah. He's it, he, he's obviously the audience surrogate for a lot of it, to, to have it the, the world explained to him so we understand it alongside him, which is a, a very nice way of doing it. But he's very much our surrogate because he's a giant nerd. <laughs> yes. He so many quote, pop culture references. It's great. Yeah, 
he makes all these references. He comes up with nicknames. Those of you who watch Lost will remember Sawyer and the way he comes up with nicknames for people. He does it for everyone, John Crichton. He just has everyone little little references, little uh, comparisons to Earth movies and films. But he's also an astronaut and a scientist testing out his own experiment. And he looks like Ben Browder. So good luck to him, frankly. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> he, he often gets uh, disrobed quite a lot. Or at least the very tight white shirts. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't actually recall ever seeing him shirtless. Even in Jeremiah Crichton, did he get shirtless in that? Uh, yes, yes, I know for a fact he did. Oh, oh Matthew knows for a fact. <laughs> and okay. if if we have to talk about Jeremiah Crichton, we will. I will discuss why. <laughs> okay. One of the things I love about his character arc is the the first few episodes very much is just him reacting to the world around him. Occasionally, he gets them out of a spot of bother or some sort of problem, and he does so by using his his earth science or his his understanding of how things work and it's it's very reactive to everything and then you go through you have an episode called the flax where he learns to fly the crafts the the little shuttles that they use so he's uh, adapting to the world and, and deciding to actually live in it properly and then you have this episode that we've mentioned a couple of times called jeremiah Crichton where it opens with him having a freak out just people blaming him for not having adapted enough or seeming to put him down because he doesn't understand it all and he just jumps in his little ship and goes off for a drive as he as he puts it like going for a drive and then there's a problem on their ship and it disappears into starburst as it's called this this universe's version of hyperspace or warp speed and he's just left floating alone on his own and he and he has to properly adapt to the alien planet he ends up living on and it's part of a nice character evolution to say he learns about it, he, he tries to rebel, but it ends up with him having to fully commit to everything going on around him. I really like that. That's interesting, because everything that you've said to me about Jeremiah Crichton is that you hate that episode, and so I'm surprised to hear you say that you like aspects <laughs> of it. You can't hate it, you just have to pity it. <laughs> okay. I'm going to skip ahead, we're going to talk about Jeremiah Crichton, because this is a really good point to do it. It's generally regarded as one of the worst episodes of Farscape and, and rated quite poorly. There, there are a couple more that we have yet to come that are also considered not good. And, and every show will have bad things. There is a commentary track on the DVDs and the uh, Blu-rays for that episode, which is the series creator, the writer, the guy who played John and um, Claudia Black, who played Aaron Soon. And they open it up by saying this commentary track is called when bad things happen to good episodes. <laughs> <laughs> and they just go through this. Oh, we had this really great idea of him sat fishing off the wing of his ship. And then we, we evolved it from there. And we really wanted him to grow a beard. So we had a thing with, with him with a beard. And they had this idea for having uh, a native tribe. And they thought, oh, instead of casting you know, Caucasian actors as the native people, we'll actually get some of the Pacific Islanders who are actors in the area to get them to come in and do it. And... It's a great idea. It's just they don't pull it off very well. Everyone looks the same. Everyone has to wear these, or everyone's dressed the same, but they have to wear these ridiculous horns on their shoulders and their heads. Crichton's beard didn't come in very well, so they stuck a fake beard on him that you can see move a couple of times. Um, <laughs> the thing of him sat on his wing happens once in the first few minutes. It just it doesn't come off very well. And throughout the commentary, it's just them taking apart this episode and going... 
we should have done that better, we should have done that better. And the thing that they really pick up on, that actually Claudia Black says, she says the problem is they played that episode straight. Any mm-hmm. other episode of Farscape, they know they're a bit silly and they have fun with it. But Jeremiah Crichton, by and large, they play it as really serious, really intense. We've got to do, you know, bowing down to Rigel because he's our dominar and serving him things. And we've got dealings of the priests versus the chiefs. and Oh, it's all of this stuff. Whereas on any other episode, it would have just been making fun of things uh, in, in, in a nice way, but just being silly with it rather than being really earnest. There were a few really funny things, though, and particularly Rigel face planting. I just... I liked it because it was Rigel and, and he face planted right in the sand, not once, <laughs> but twice. And it was they do like getting very violent to the Rigel puppets because you can. That is true. I didn't have as much a problem with Jeremiah Crichton as you did, but I've only also seen it once and I still yeah. haven't seen the rest of the show. And so I don't have its greatest episodes to compare it to. Yeah. It was a weak episode plot wise, I think. But I compare it to one of my favorite episodes of Voyager was, I I don't remember what it was called, but it was the one where Janeway and Chakotay end up stranded on a planet and the Voyager leaves them Mm -hmm. and they get stuck there and they just have to live there for, you know, months or whatever until Voyager comes back for them. And that was essentially what this episode was, except it was, you know, Crichton by himself and, oh, hey, there's people living on this planet who are apparently from Hawaii or something. (laughs) So I don't don't know. I just, I didn't hate it. I didn't love it, but I, I did like some aspects of it. I like one of my favorite things about Crichton is his compassion and his ability to look at people who are different and, be empathetic to put himself in their shoes. And Mm. he does that really well in this episode by how he chooses to live apart from the village because he doesn't want to influence them or impact them, how he chooses not to get involved with the chief's daughter, even though it's clear that she wants to. And he does it all in a very compassionate way. And that's one of my favorite character traits of his. And so I like how it was focused on in this episode. Yeah, he's a very smart character. He calls things out that on another show they would go, oh, we won't make them notice that. But he does say, yeah, I know you like me, but I can't, so go away. And then when the the jealous guy comes along wanting to be with her, he says, look, look, I'm trying everything I can to stop her wanting to be with me, okay? Just leave me alone. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So, Crichton's a great character. Uh, What did you think of Erin Sun? I didn't really like her at first. Mm Mm-hmm. Because she had a lot of attitude mm-hmm. and was just very arrogant, but <laughs> she grew on me a lot by the end. Of course, John and Aaron are my OTP. <laughs> you know, I, I was a little actually frustrated that they did kind of sort of get together a little bit, but then they kind of acted like that never happened. So mm. I don't really know where we are in that whole thing, but I really like the two of them together. I think. I think they are great opposites of each other. Mm-hmm. They complement each other very well. Mm-hmm. You know, they they elevate each other. They're not yes. the same at all. They're very different. But they're they're both neither of them are afraid to call the other out when they're mm-hmm. being stupid, when when they need to, you know, shut up and listen. And 
I realize that I'm sitting here talking about Aaron and, and completely only in the context of how she acts and reacts around a man, which is a <laughs> terrible thing to do, but I love their relationship. But I also do love Aaron on her own. I think her character development was pretty spectacular, especially when you think about the story of who she is and how she was raised in a peacekeeper environment. You know, she was taken from her family at a young age and raised as a peacekeeper, which means she was raised to be part of a team. She was never alone. She always knew where she was going, what she was supposed to do, where she was supposed to be. And now all of a sudden she's essentially alone. She's on the ship. Yes. With, you know, five other people, but she's the only one of her people there. And it's a completely new experience for her. She's used to being a soldier and now she has to learn how to be a person, how to be compassionate, how to do all of these things that she's never had to do. And the relationship that she ends up developing with Pilot and with Moya are both two of my favorite things in the season. Mm. Yeah, she's effectively introduced as a stormtrooper to, to the extent she's in a stormtrooper-esque outfit at the very beginning of her introduction that is absolutely Um, true that's very accurate and and then as it goes on a little bit like with finn in the force awakens you start learning a bit more about her personality and like you say about the learning uh the the way that they were raised and she also has to adapt to this world and and it's it's really heavy-handed the early episode thank god it's friday again where she has to figure out what's wrong with Rigel and try and solve it and she does do a quite a bit of but science is hard yeah <laughs> kind of it's, me. yeah it's laid on quite a bit but it is a very nice thing and, and to the extent when you get to is it through the broken mirror Where is through it? the looking glass through, through the looking glass yes when you get to the episode through the looking glass and she knows what she's doing. She comes up with a way of... She's stuck in a place that has this really loud noise. So she comes out up with a way of stopping the noise and being able to communicate with other people there. And then she even knows what John is going to tell her to do when he comes up with his great plan to save them. And and one of my favorite lines is he goes to her. She tells him she knows exactly what to do. She explains it to him and, and he goes, it's going to be very hard to doubt you in future. And she goes, I apologize for my strengths. <laughs> and they do it in another show that could come off as really condescending the, the actual text when i when i look at looked at it when i wrote it back i went wow that, that could come off really badly but they're not even next to each other they're talking over headsets and that it's done with a smile and you know that he's saying it in a way of respect right. okay you you've come so far and i'm really impressed with what you're doing yeah yeah, I love that character arc. It's it's yeah, really good. And not not only just the intellectual stuff she has to do and going and figuring out how to do stuff uh, that's not just running around and shooting things, but like you say, the empathy and the emotion and, and humanity, in inverted commas, for an alien, that she learns in dealing with other people and working with others and having friends. Yeah, it's great. But if we move to Zan, Pao Zoto-san, uh, who is our Delvian plant, <laughs> we have what could probably be the closest thing to the heart of the team. That's exactly what I was just thinking. Yeah. Or at least she starts out that way. Yes. Definitely. She, they, they lean very heavily on her background of religion and compassion and we want to learn and so on and so forth. Right. But, she, I mean, she has a pretty significant character arc in mm. this season. And by the end of it, she's... She's a pretty different 
person than she was at the beginning. And and some of that is just because we learn her backstory and who she is. Yeah. But part of that is also because she makes choices to change who she, she fundamentally changes who she is. She's a priest mm-hmm. in the beginning of the season. And at the end of the season, she's no longer a priest. She chooses not to do that anymore. And she chooses to kind of embrace some of her inner darkness that she had worked so hard not to have and that didn't exist in the first half of the season. And so for me, she she shifts away from being the heart of, of the show and of the crew. Mm. Although I'm not actually sure who replaces I would actually probably say Dargo replaces it. Which is a very nice segue to Car Dargo. Because <laughs> <laughs> you don't have much to say about Zan. Yeah, I, I think describing her as the heart is absolutely right. Um, okay. That's that's a lot, a lot of what she has to do. Um, and they try to get her to do other stuff during the season. Like you say, she becomes integral to defeating the magic creature they come up against. Um, and there's even the Delvian episode where they have to deal with the, the Delvians wanting some of her power. I did not like that episode. No. I think that's my <laughs> least favorite of the whole season. But But by and large, yeah, she's there to have the sort of moral guide for everyone else. Right. And and to worry and care like the the hen mother she sometimes can be. <laughs> so yeah, let's let's go okay. to Dargo. Dargo is probably my favorite character who mm. isn't John Crichton. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I and his character arc is the best for me, honestly, because he goes from being this mean warrior jerk who is completely selfish and is only looking out for himself to being someone who deeply cares for every member of this crew. Hmm. And when you learn his backstory, you just can't help but love him even more, I think. Yeah, just to fill everyone in, his backstory is that he uh, was sent to prison for the murder of his wife but that was actually, oh, do we know? Who did it yet? Uh, the assumption is that her brother did it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> her brother killed her because she was a peacekeeper. She was a uh, sedation. Mm-hmm. And she chose to marry Aluxan and they had a child together. And the sedations thought that was such a monstrosity. It was such a travesty that this happened that they would rather kill her than to see her be happy in this family. And mm. so her own brother killed her and framed Dargo. And so Dargo was in prison for it. And the episode where we find out the story, he cries, and it just mm-hmm. absolutely broke my heart. Broke my heart. And I was in love with Dargo from that moment forward. <laughs> and I don't mean that in like a romantic way. I mean, I just... No, he's... He's, oh, he, yeah. he's, he's, he's great. And, and he... With his arc and his story, you actually see how he relates to every single other character. You see him grow with Pilot after the DNA Mad Scientist episode. You see him grow with Moya. You see him grow with Aaron, especially with Zan. And most importantly, I think, with John Crichton. And you see all of those relationships just grow deeper and become more meaningful and and be a relationship that is the kind of relationship that you would want to have with somebody, a deep friendship, you know, where you have somebody who has your back and who you care for deeply. Mm. And and you get that from Dargo. And that's why he is the kind of character that I go to TV shows for. Okay. 
You sound surprised. No, no, I'm, I'm pleased. I like that as a way of saying it. Terrific. His introduction, it's very easy to write him off as a Klingon. All yes. about war and strength and honour. But actually, they take him in a, a different direction, which is done really nicely, like you say, of him actually being on everyone's side and wanting to do the right thing, but also prepared to make hard calls. Yes. Mm. Yeah, I have a lot of time for uh, Targo. And it, quite often, they use him to be very funny because he's so straight. They use him to, to get a, a lot of little comedy from him not understanding John or not understanding what's going on around him. Because he's so serious. Right. But he's great. <laughs> I love him. Although on on the comedy point, I always forget this watching. But Erin's really funny. <laughs> She's probably the comic relief for half of the se- season. Little little remarks at everyone else and, and uh, little side comments and, and, and like you say, very <laughs> arrogant sass. <laughs> oh, one of, one of my favorite quotes... That I know we're going to get to it in a little bit, but one of my favorite quotes is from her um, when she's talking to John Crichton and she has misunderstood a human phrase. <laughs> she says that they give her a Woody. <laughs> and, and, and John's just looking at her like, what are you talking about? And she's like, well, that's what you call it. That's what she said. They give me a Woody. And he's like, no, they give you the willies. <laughs> <laughs> and oh my gosh, it's just, it's the best. It's the best because she, not being human, only has the frame of reference of John saying this to her. And, and for her to know the word Woody means he's used that in front of her too. <laughs> yeah. And it's spectacular. I love it. It's so funny. And that's what, four or five episodes in? <laughs> yeah. Like that. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. It's great. So moving through our character list, we come to Rigel, the first of our puppets. Rigel's a little shit. <laughs> Do I need to say something else at this point? <laughs> Do you want to say the other note you made about him? <laughs> <laughs> Not only is Rigel a little shit, but Rigel is a puppet, and he farts helium, you guys. <laughs> when he farts, it's helium, and then the people around him talk <laughs> in really high-pitched voices, because Rigel farts helium. <laughs> So, of course, they find a- reasons to have him in enclosed spaces with other people. <laughs> yes, they do. Because, yeah. you know, he he gets nervous and then he farts. <laughs> and then, of course, there was another episode where uh, the food, particles in the food, interacted with Rigel. Because all Rigel does is eat. So, of course, he ate a lot of this food. And so then his pee was explosive. <laughs> and so they made him pee on things to blow them up. <laughs> And it, I can't believe I'm laughing because I don't like toilet humor. <laughs> I get really annoyed at it because it's so easy. But this is All not of just toilet humor. Is toilet humor. <laughs> but he is a he is a puppet. He's so often sat on a little throne sled, this little thing that flies around, to make it really easy for them to have someone beneath him puppeteering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and one of the things they called out in the commentary was the puppets work really well because the live actors interact with them. They touch them, they hit them, they move them around, they pick them up and put them down elsewhere. So it makes them feel genuinely real. Whereas in something like the Muppets, you know, any guest star on just stands and talks to them. There's no real interaction. Yeah. 
They do use CGI sometimes. Um, there was yeah. a CGI Rigel, and I, I read that they had a hard time with it because the puppet kept evolving. Mm. They they kept making the puppet better. He looked better. His skin, you know, changed. And and mm-hmm. and of course, I've only seen season one, so I, I haven't seen much of this. Uh, but they kept having to re-render the, the 3D model that oh they used for the CGI because they kept making the puppet better. And I thought that was cool. Terrific. Yeah, and, it's, uh, it's a great way to do, again, alien aliens. Yeah. Um, and, and I just, I want to call out one of, okay, there are two things about Rigel that I really like. Mm. Even though he's a little shit. He's <laughs> artelium. He eats all the time because he loves food. Apparently, Hylarians have three stomachs. And he made it. He made a joke at one point that by the time the third one is full, the first one is empty, which is why he's always eating. That sounds like me. And <laughs> um, O'Bannon, after he saw Rigel eat for the first time, he thought it looked so good that he wanted Rigel to eat all the time because it was just a really, really great effect. And he said it really does look good when he's stuffing his face. And I can't really disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, the other thing about Rigel that I really, really like are his ears. Hmm. The one, his ears are what inspired Ben Browder to call him Fluffy. That was imp- okay. improvised when, when Creighton calls him Fluffy. It wasn't in the script. He did it because his little ears are Fluffy. And um, I love the way they move because they give him such expression mm-hmm. and make him cute and adorable and sometimes like it's like a cat you know whenever you see those gifs of cats especially well fake cats like in puss in boots mm. but when you see the cats who like kind of shrink back and their eyes get really big and they flatten their ears and they're mm-hmm. just adorable rigel's ears invoke that in me yeah and i love it even though i hate him because <laughs> selfish and <sighs> yeah he's selfish I legitimately thought in the final arc of this episode that when Rigel left and went to Crace's ship Mm -hmm. to sell them out, I hoped that he had a plan, that he was just being clever, that he wasn't really going to sell them out. And he really did go to sell them out. And I like that because it's true to his character, but I hate that because that means he's really not part of this found family and I want him to be. (laughs) you know but i guess it would be too easy if all of the characters loved each other yeah as much as all the characters have good traits and things we like about them they're very believable because because there are times when they're selfish when john loses it and has to go out for a drive because he's just annoyed at everyone where people do things that annoy each other or or where they uh, want something for themselves so they go after it in spite of what everyone's saying or, or otherwise doing yeah. And usually they come back and do the right thing. Dargo trying to get his son in the flax and deciding that, no, he needs to go and save John and Aaron first. But you get to see that crisis and that decision go on with them. Um, and it's, it's very good. It's very good television. It's very good writing because it's not just, oh, yeah, these characters are perfect and do the right thing every time. <laughs> they're they're yeah. nuanced and flawed. Yeah. Uh, that reminds me of actually something that I wish I had said back when we were talking about Jeremiah Creighton. But I'll say it now because it Mm -hmm. popped into my head. One of my pet peeves in fiction is when your characters don't communicate with each other in order to drive conflict so that there can be story. 
Ah, I lost. hate that. I hate that. <laughs> and they didn't do that in Jeremiah Crichton. Yes, at first, John walks away and doesn't allow Dargo to tell him, no, we've been looking for you. We didn't abandon you. But it was pretty close to the beginning of the episode and up front when they had that conversation mm. and John realized, oh, I'm being a jerk here. They didn't leave me. And that wasn't the focus of the episode. That didn't drive the conflict. And I loved that. I think that's one of the best things in that episode because they actually talked to each other and they figured out the truth. Yeah. People tell each other what they're seeing and what's happening. Yeah, there's no, no, nothing false about any problem they come up against. They try and work the problem every time. Um, you have Chiana down next. Can we talk about mm -hmm. Pilot and Moya first since they were on the show first? Yep. Pilot and Moya, I love them. And it's weird to me that I love Moya so much because Moya doesn't speak. Moya is a ship who happens to be alive, <laughs> but is not actually a character in the sense of an autonomous character. But I love her, and I love the way everybody else interacts with her, especially in the last episode when John talks to her and makes her understand that that it, the best thing for her to do is to leave mm. because that's going to give the most people the possibility of surviving. Yeah. And, and she listens and she goes and it's great. And, and pilot in the first couple of episodes, pilot was weird to me, especially since we didn't physically see pilot. We just saw the hologram of pilot. Mm. And so I didn't really understand the connection that pilot had to Moya and, and why, like, I didn't really understand how the world worked. And so I was intrigued by Pilot. But then when Pilot became a character in his own right, mm. it was just, I liked it a lot. And again, it's a puppet that can generate feelings of sorrow and sadness and happiness. And that's just unfathomable to me that a puppet can do that. You know, when, when they chopped off his arm in DNA <sighs> Mad Scientist, mm. I was so angry. I was furious. Like, I kind of had to stop <laughs> because I couldn't believe that these characters that I love could be so mean and heartless. And uh, I don't know. I, I'm just, I'm gushing at this point and I know that, and I know that you hate it when I just gush, but I, just, I like him. He's not my favorite, but he makes me feel happy, warm, fuzzy things. But pilot is a very nice character. Because even when they've cut his arm off, he, he has a few things back at them. And he's obviously not happy about it. But he doesn't kick them off the ship. He doesn't... Uh, other characters with their arm cut off would have had stronger reactions, you think? Um, oh, and that's, that's a really good example of what I was saying. These characters are flawed because they have a chance to find their homeworlds if they cut off one of his arms through some <laughs> complicated machinations of another character. Um, but they do it because... Yeah, it's important to them, and they want what's important to them. I, I love when sometimes they put Pilot in contrast to Moya, particularly when she's protecting the baby, because uh, Moya's pregnant, the ship is pregnant, guys. Um, <laughs> but when she's protecting the baby, and she's actually starving Pilot so he doesn't find out and, and do something that gets rid of the baby, or, or put the baby at risk. Mm -hmm. So you actually see, yeah, there are two separate characters. You can't just treat them as one gestalt entity. Right, even though... They, they're they're symbiotic, I guess, mm. is, is the right word. It, yeah. They can't function without each other, but they're very independent. Mm. 
and I referenced through the looking glass and that's one of the, the particular times that Moya actually exerts an influence on things. She has an opinion that she doesn't want them to leave. So she tries to prove her uh, essential nature by entering Starburst. And that's what gets them in the problem in the first place. Right. And so often it would be John does something or Rigel does something or, or someone does it that starts the story or that gets them in trouble. But to have and it come from Moya is Moya. yeah, really different. And, and, I, I love the CG of the, the clamshell when when they're talking to Pilot and you don't see him, but you see this hologram because it's just really good CG. It really works. And, and you can, un- particularly once you've seen him real live in the flesh, as it were, um, you can picture what he's doing and you only have shots of his head. But you go, oh, I can imagine him working with Moya and pressing all the buttons and things as he's going. Yes. In, in the script for the premiere, they, they did say that there's bits in there were cut to Pilot's den. But I wonder if maybe there's a behind-the-scenes story of they didn't have the puppet ready or they did, they weren't quite sure about shooting it yet. So they delayed a few episodes and then introduced them a bit later on. So rounding out our main characters, we come to Chiana, who is introduced about two-thirds of the way through the season uh, and becomes the last of our crew of Moya. Now, for me, this moment marks a change. When I look at the list of all the episodes, Durka Returns, where she's, she's introduced, is... The shift in it, I go, oh, from here on out, pretty much every episode is significant, cannot be missed, has something interesting going on to it, and and bits that I absolutely love. Is it Chiana's introduction that makes the show better? Is it that they they become more serialized and every episode has an influence on the following episode from there on out? I don't think so, but that's also because I think the turning point is in a different place than you do. Mm. Chiana shows up in episode 15, which is, as you said, Durka Returns. I think that the episode called DNA Mad Scientist, which is episode nine. Hmm. I think that's the turning point in the season because that is the episode where we have the biggest conflict between the crew and the biggest resolution between the crew. And so after that, we get them being a unit, a single unit moving forward after that, working together better. And so for me, that's when all of the episodes get better. And it might just be because I really don't like Chiana at all. (laughs) <laughs> why do you not like Gianna? she reminds me of a snake literally <laughs> the way that she talks the way that she moves mm. and I don't like it I don't like it and there's nothing about her personality that I like I felt sorry for her in Durka Returns at first but that's because she was playing Demure she was playing Meek when we actually get Chiana being Chiana, I just don't like her. There's nothing about her that I like. Okay. How interesting. I I really like Chiana. I th- I, as I say, her introduction changes the show a bit for me. Um, I, I think it's something to do with what they can do with the characters. So she often becomes um, a partner to Rigel, whereas before that, pretty much every character is in opposition to Rigel, is annoyed with him, is hitting him, is telling him to do something different in the manner of a small child. But she's the one who also wants to do selfish, stealing <laughs> type things. So it allows him to have a bit more breadth to what he can do because he's not just opposing everyone. Okay, see, and I don't recall much of that in season one. So is that character development that happens between them in later seasons? Well, in um, is it in A Bug's Life? The episode where... He's looking at stealing or, or finding out what's in the crate, but she's actually working to do it, and they end up partnering up. 
Fair. It just it, it allows him a moment rather than us just going, oh, Rigel. You actually get the discussion of them doing it and how they're going to do it and him hiding out. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I just, I, I don't like her. Maybe my okay. opinion will change in later seasons, but right now, I dislike her more than anybody else that we meet except for Scorpius. Okay. <laughs> um, I also think she, she frees up Zahn a little bit more because Zahn isn't having to partner people or, and, and Dargo a little bit as well. They're not having to go and do going down to planets with people like when John goes down to the base and coming up with reasons for that. She gives a, another out because she's not the prisoner that people want. So they're having to come up with some excuse around that. I think she just gives the show a little bit more room to do interesting things with the stories. Okay. But like you say, she's only been in a third of the season so far, so uh, there's a we'll bit more for her to come. We'll see how I feel after season two. Mm, definitely. <laughs> so we come to some of our antagonists now. You just mentioned Scorpius, that he's the one that you like the least. Yes. And he's only introduced with like four episodes to go. Yes. What about his introduction? <laughs> <laughs> Please talk to that point. <laughs> <laughs> I, okay. I don't really understand Scorpius. Hmm. I mean, I do because he's a villain and villains are all after the same thing. They want something and they're going to kill anybody that they need to kill to get that something. You know, that's standard fare for, for villains. But but up until the point that Scorpius is introduced, Crace has been our villain because Crace wants vengeance on Crichton for killing his brother mm-hmm. and Crace wants to recover the prisoner ship and the prisoners that he lost. Yeah. That's very clear and straightforward. We understand what the conflict is. Scorpius is introduced. We don't know who he is. We don't know what he's doing. We don't know why he's there. He's not the same species as this. I mean, he's not, I guess he's a Sebation hybrid. And I think they may mention that. I'm not sure. But all of a sudden, when we get to this secret base, Scorpius is in charge, and we've never seen him before. Mm. It's a peacekeeper base, but this guy who's not a peacekeeper is in charge, and he's just evil. And <laughs> I, I, I don't know what to do with him. Okay. That, that's really what it is. I don't know what to do with him. I don't know who he is or what he wants. Eventually, we find out what he wants, but... It's so coincidental that I can't help but feel like there's something else that's been going on that we just don't know about. I don't know. He's just evil, and he comes out of nowhere. The very best villains don't think they're villains. I I know arguably any character doesn't think they're evil or anything like that, but so many villains are played as though, ha-ha, I shall twirl my moustache because I am evil and I just want to stop you no matter what. The best villains have a goal and they want to go after it. And usually the the difference is that they don't have a moral code. They don't have the sh- even the white or the shades of grey. So the the one that I particularly think of is the cigarette smoking man from The X-Files, which I think you've not seen much of The X-Files. Um, Correct. But he, he is very much someone who thinks he's in the right and everything he's doing is what should be done for the best of everyone. Scorpius plays it very much like that. He would, like you say, we find that he's researching wormholes. He wants to use them. I, I think we don't get anything about why he wants to use them, but he finds a way of fast-tracking his research through getting John and ripping the information out of his head. So he decides to, that that's the way to go about it, as well as uh, the same thing he's doing to Stark and trying to rip something out of his head. I think Stark says a planet. Well, okay, let's, let's talk about the Aurora chair for a second, though. Mm. How can somebody create 
a chair like that that causes so much pain just in order to rip memories out of somebody's head because they're not talking and, and you need to know what's in their brain. How can you do that and not think you're a villain? Because pain is insignificant to him. The people are insignificant. Everything is insignificant to Scorpius. Yeah. I mean, that's his catchphrase. <laughs> but I don't understand why this is a research facility that the secret base is a research facility mm. for him to to research wormholes, right? Mm-hmm. Th- that's what we find out. Mm-hmm. So I want to know what it is about researching wormholes that made him create this torture device and how he got an assistant who is so willing and accepting of inflicting torture on people and how that has to do with research. Um, we can probably reference the Milgram experiments <laughs> of people being telling other people to uh, electrocute someone else in the name of science and that people thought they were killing other people but still carried on doing it because a man in a white coat told them to. <laughs> right, but that's researching whether or not people are going to listen to authority so that's why there was torture. But this is torture for wormholes. It's, it's different. I, just, I don't know. No, it well, just... the, the Milgram experiment was they, they were told they were researching, um, I think, people's ability to do mental arithmetic under pressure and electrocution or, or while getting electric shocks. But the actual the actual research was, are they obedient if they're told to do this right. stuff? It, it's the person right. delivering them. Um, so anyone other than Scorpius delivering it, that's that's my sort of excuse for it. That people would do what's ordered uh, by the person in charge, particularly because the peacekeepers are portrayed as the evil empire. <laughs> Very much. There's not they too really much are. nuance a to lot that. Of Star Wars. Star, yeah. A lot of Star Wars. <laughs> but Scorpius himself uh, comes through as charming isn't the right word, but he's, he's ultra confident in, in himself and he wants to do it through intellectual pursuit he's charismatic yes that is a good way to describe it but evil but he does things with absolutely zero moral code he's a psychopath (laughs) that's exactly what he is he's a psychopath high functioning sociopath surely (laughs) (laughs) oh that hurts my heart (laughs) (laughs) but it it doesn't help that he looks like Skeletor in a leather bondage suit (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> okay, that that's going to make me not think he's as creepy as he is. I like that. <laughs> if he looked like Ben Browder. In fact, if you if you cast your mind back to Serenity and the operative who also largely didn't have a moral code and went after them, but believed what he was doing was right and the proper thing to do. No, I can't compare them. <laughs> Scorpius is pure evil and the operative is not. Okay. But we are running long, and we haven't gotten to all of the characters yet. So let's let's finish up our characters and then and then move on. Okay. Let's leave Crace for last, mm-hmm. and and quickly touch on Stark. Yeah, do you want to talk about Stark? He's he's only in a couple of episodes, really, um, but I think he's worth mentioning because he is a terrific character. I did not remember what his name was, and when I saw the word Stark on this list, I had to go look him up. <laughs> okay. And. Then I got spoiled because I figured out, oh, hey, guess what? Cool. We're going to see him again. To me, he was very insignificant. Okay. I, you know, I mean, he was nice and he was great, but I didn't see him as being super relevant to the plot as it unfolded. 
other than, you know, he helped relieve some pain. <laughs> so why don't you talk about Stark, since clearly I was not picking up what they were putting down about him. Well, one of my enduring memories is just his introduction as he's super, super crazy. Like, it feels like it, you're better off with Scorpius in the Aurora chair than this guy doing his my side, your side, my side, your side oh, in their yeah. prison cell. <laughs> you're right. Then, you know, actually, I forgot that he was crazy at first because mm. I just I got really excited when we found out he really wasn't crazy, that he was faking it. Yeah. And then all I remember is him not being crazy. So I completely forgot that was a thing. Yeah, that that revelation that actually he's faking it. He's winding Scorpius up by pretending to love the Aurora chair and just to hide something from him. And because he's faking, he's able to help John a bit uh, use his metaphysical powers, whatever they are, to relieve some of the pain that John's going through. Yeah. Yeah. And randomly has collected lots of metal to make a magnetic spectra hunger duplifler. Um, to try and unlock the door. <laughs> yes. There was some techno babble in there. It made no sense because he's collected scraps of metal and made a door unlocking device. Okay. Okay. I'll whistle past it. It's fine. Yes. It, it is a sci-fi show. Because he's half metaphysical wavy gold being. Yes. But uh, apparently he is important and we will see him again in, in okay. later seasons. Cool. I'm glad I, you went I and looked it up. <laughs> Give me a break, okay? I was looking up season one stuff, and it was spoiled on a page that said season one summary. So it is okay. not my fault. I did not look up anything in the future. I only looked up season one and totally got spoiled. Although I did okay. also look up Farscape Gifts, and that was a very bad idea. Yeah. Just kidding. Yeah, don't yeah. do that, you guys. If you, if you haven't seen later stuff... Don't Google Farscape gifts because all of them are from later seasons. All of them. And that's bad when you don't want to be spoiled on things. So in our character review, it just leaves us with Crace. Captain Bylar Crace, who is basically an MCU villain. Yes. Yeah? Yeah. He's just hunting them and shouts a lot. Yes. <laughs> I, you know, I really had hope for him. I still actually have a little bit of hope for him. Like, I think it would be absolutely wonderful if his character development made him become the best of friends with John Creighton. I think that would be spectacular. <laughs> it could still happen, but I think the turning point, in my opinion, of him happened in, oh God, what episode is that? That old black magic? Is that the one with the creepy clown and the yeah. magic? Yes. Magician, yeah. The introduction of magic yes. to, to the Farscape world. <laughs> that was the turning point for him because mm. that was the episode where he understood it was an accident, understood that Crichton, you know, did not intentionally kill his brother, that there was no reason for him to be exacting revenge. He rationally and logically listened, internalized that, said, okay, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to kill you anyway because I'm still mad. I have a code. And I'm an MCU villain. I will shout at you till the end. And oh, it just it it made me so mad. It did. It made me so mad. But honestly, I don't know that I should have expected anything else from him. Because yeah, by by the end of it, you start getting some sympathy for him 
because Scorpius is just totally overwhelming him. Scorpius, if this was a game, if this was Magic the Gathering, some sort of fighting game, any fantasy game, I'd be going, Scorpius is overpowered. He basically has strength 10, intelligence 9, charisma 10. <laughs> he comes on board Crace's ship and he starts telling him what to do much quicker than Crace would have worked it out. Crace can't even attack him because Scorpius turns out to be much, much stronger than him. <laughs> and you start going, oh, oh, Crace had it all in the bag. He had this sorted. He knew what he was doing. And now there's someone who appears to not have a rank but be taking over. Yeah, more things about Scorpius I don't like. He showed up out of nowhere. He is no one, yet he's in charge. Because <laughs> he's evil. <laughs> That's all I got. I'm okay. sorry. <laughs> yeah. with, with, with Crace, though, I think because the season ended on a cliffhanger, it's hard for me to really understand where Crace is coming from. Mm. I am not convinced that he was actually seeking asylum from the Farscape crew, or I guess Moya's crew, I am not convinced that he really is trying to go up against Scorpius. I I, I don't know. I, I don't know. And I guess that's good. That's what the writers want, I think. Mm. You know, it's good for it to not be super predictable. Yep. And again, new, nuanced characters. This guy who has been the lead villain for the rest of the show, for the rest of the season, and suddenly he's going to work with them he's going to be their captive oh no but now suddenly he's stolen the gunship talon <laughs> well i knew that was going to happen as soon as they brought him on board yeah letting him go on board was the dumbest thing they've ever done <laughs> yeah it, it's a bit strange when they suddenly start letting him stand around freely on his own yes <laughs> yeah hey so no. i still i still have hope i would honestly love it i would love it if Chris and john became best friends Okay. I would. I think that would be amazing. And I look forward to seeing what's going to happen. But I suspect Crace is going to continue to be an antagonist through all four seasons. Okay. So that closes out the, the list of the main characters from the, from the season. Um, as we went through it, I was making notes on things that stood out to me, things that I thought are, are worth calling out or paying attention to. So I'm going to go through a list here and, and you can call out stuff that you like or, or want to add on to. The first is the opening monologue. Except for the premiere, every episode... Oh, actually, no. It's called a premiere. This show did not have a pilot because the season was basically funded up front. They were filming a couple of episodes at a time, so they didn't have to pilot the show. It is a premiere show. That's why I keep using the word premiere. And it's called premiere. A little bit of uh, trivia for you. No, with the exception of that one, there is a monologue at the beginning. Um, and it's it's good. It has, has a lot of heavy lifting to do. Uh, a bit reminiscent of Quantum Leap or the A-Team. There's a lot of background to explain. But it, it does quite a nice job of telling you what's going on if you're coming into this world. But I just love the way it opens, where it starts up and you get this flurry of music and he goes, my name is John Crichton, an astronaut. Farscape is often described as being sexy. Lots of characters wear leather or long coats or different degrees of dress and, and they're all very uh, sexually confident which is a very positive thing i would not have thought to describe farscape as sexy okay maybe i just haven't seen enough of it yet yeah okay i love in the monologue when he goes i'm an astronaut <laughs> he just puts such an accent on it it always makes me think he's this is my astronaut <laughs> <laughs> Wow, I have never picked up on that. <laughs> and, and I didn't want to say it as you were watching it, because obviously you've got more to watch anyway. 
I, I just love it every time it makes me laugh and I have to watch the whole monologue just for that opening. Okay. Let me just put this out there. So when I put a call out on Facebook for people to tell me what they thought about Farscape because we were going to record this, my friend Kevin said, I liked that show, but the theme song still haunts me to this day. Theme tune. Which, of course, confused you because there's not actually a real theme song. It's this voiceover from John (laughs) with this creepy, haunting, operatic, alien, chanting, yodeling thing happening underneath (laughs) it. And so I have to be honest, I don't think I ever actually listened to the entire voiceover because I was trying so hard not to listen to the music because it creeped me out. Okay. And so I came across the text of it when I was doing my season one Googling and I read it and I was like, no, that's not what he says. Cause I've never heard that before. And then I realized that's why I had never heard it because I was trying so hard not to listen to music. It me out. <laughs> so that may be why I never picked up on, on his emphasis on the wrong syllable and astronaut. I'm an astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's yeah. I, I will probably try to pay attention when I start season two. The, the season three monologue and music is the best of it they don't generally change the music too much but season three is i think the best oh do they change the the words of the the voiceover too yes oh that's ex- then I, okay well then i will pay attention in season two but i guess he doesn't say the same thing uh season two is largely the same as season one so you've got, you've got a bit of time with it yet okay okay right. I, I will look out for for john's ass <laughs> We talked in the Firefly episodes about the way they use Chinese to get some cursing and swearing through um, and some phrases that you wouldn't normally get to say. Um, you mentioned the use of frack from Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. Farscape does it better than any other show. There's, a, there's yes. a list of 20 plus different words that they use to stand in for uh, normal English swearing. You are a real pain in the Ema. Listen, Alice's Dren comes really naturally to you. You aren't just Farbot, you're Magra Farbot. What the hell's mana is it? Frell you. What the hell's mana is it? <laughs> Frell is the word. I even had a t-shirt that had Frell written on the front of it, and, and I've used it myself. Because um, it's, oh, think... it's very useful stand-in. It's way better than frack. Yeah. It yeah. rolls off the tongue better. Yes, I, I like it a lot. Yeah, but there's so many, and there's words they they use once and never return to. There's uh, like you hear that. I, I love that line. You aren't just farbot, you're magrafarbot. <laughs> We're gonna double down on our alien alienness. <laughs> but you know what? You don't need to know exactly what the words are that that they're replacing because you totally understand the intent of that. Yeah, exactly. And it's 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 pretty good. They they do the the aliens wearing thing pretty good. Yeah, and it, it makes it much more visceral to have a show. And and this is why they introduced certainly Frell because they needed her having this really strong reaction of just Frell you, <laughs> just stop winding me up. <laughs> yeah, the the interesting thing about it to me is that when they use these words, that the microbes don't translate them. They remain in the the alien dialect or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I and and it's not only when they swear; it's when mm. they're really, really super passionate and like very angry. And I I like that. You mm. know, it I it it got called out to me in one of the last two episodes. Whenever the, the last Dargo, episode mm. is it the last one when Dargo is talking to Rigel 
when Rigel's leaving because yeah, he's yeah. going over to, to Crazy Ship to, to sell them out and he's threatening him. And I'm like, wait, that's all in Luxon. And usually we don't hear that, you know, because it gets translated for us because of the, you know, fancy translator microbes. <laughs> and I just, I love that little bit of world building that when it's just so super passionate and it's just so bad, even the microbes can't translate it. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Unless the microbes have got like safe search turned on. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, like YouTube Kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. However, it brings me to my next point, um, and this is mainly me getting on my soapbox. There's a, a a thing, a trope in science fiction and fantasy of using what could be a human expression, but putting alien versions of it to make to remind us that people are alien. Farscape, I, I've talked already about how Farscape does it so well to show us you know, these people look alien. They have alien chemistry, alien evolution. They have powers that don't mesh with anything we have on Earth. But every so often, it just lapses into this trope that other shows like Star Trek are, are really bad for doing. The one that stood out to me was in Durka Returns, where Rigel has a, a line and he says, Visitors. Has Moya turned into a Glendian pleasure vessel now? Like, spoilers. Well, no, not even a spoiler. We never meet the Glendians. We don't know who Glendia is. <laughs> or if it's a race. Or a planet. Or anything. It's just, it's a random line. It's, it's, as I say, it's such a trope that is not necessary. You can do it in better ways. And every so often, Farscape does it. And then even the very next episode after that, John gives Aaron a beer. And and she says, oh, it's like furlip nectar. And she starts describing furlip nectar as something that comes from a bee or a plant or something on this random planet. And he says, no, 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 no furlip nectar. Stop giving me alien stuff. Just enjoy the beer. <laughs> but at least in that example, though, it was called out. It was a mm. very self-aware moment. Yeah. Whereas the Glindian pleasure vessel Ugh. was just a throwaway line that's never referenced again. Yeah. And it doesn't even need to be there. It could just be... Has Moya turned into a it, just a pleasure vessel? That's all it needs to be. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. right. So honestly, I'm, though, it was such a throwaway line that I didn't even remember it until yeah. you brought it up. It, it catches me up because I spot it in other shows and it winds me up. It's it's not necessary. It's something you can do better. And okay. like we always say, you can criticize something and still enjoy it. And I have okay. to try and find something bad to say about this show, otherwise it's again me gushing as well. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Um, did you spot the Matrix actors littered throughout the, the show? No. Oh. Uh, Fox, when they filmed the Matrix, uh, it was filmed in Australia. And there's a lot of actors as we go through Farscape who were in it, and particularly uh, Captain Bracker at the end of the season, the, the one that Scorpio says his career is on the rise. He's in the mm -hmm. second Matrix film. The priestess in Jeremiah Crichton, she works for the Oracle in the Oracle's uh, room. And Stark is one of the agents who is with Agent Smith trying to get the information from Morpheus when he's captured. Okay, but that's not fair because Stark's face is halfway covered with this metal <laughs> baseball hat True. and mask. And then when he takes it off, half his face is gone. So there's no way you could have expected me to recognize him. No, and I'm not I'm not judging you for having not recognized him. Okay. <laughs> I just I, – I like that they keep cropping up and as you go through you're like – I'm sure I've seen him in something. <laughs> no, but then 
I've only seen The Matrix once or twice, and I haven't seen it in at least a decade. So okay. there's just no way. <laughs> I, I, I love seeing connections like that and having so many actors from one different franchise in this one. Brilliant. A bit like having lots of Firefly actors in uh, the Halo game series or in Castle or something. <laughs> and littered throughout Joss Whedon shows. I like it when I know about it and recognize it and get it. <laughs> that was not the case with this show. So. Um, and last on my list, the episode names. One of the things I love about Farscape is the episode names are... They're a nice way of describing what happens in the show whilst also being a bit of fun. Okay. And I, I assume you want to do your fact here. I do. <laughs> because for once, it's I'm right when I say this. <laughs> When we talked about Firefly, one of the things that I – because you you insisted that, that Joss Whedon episode title names are terrible. And, of course, I brought up the idea that, you know, back in the 90s and even in the early 2000s, sometimes episode titles were internal only and were not meant to be external. And, of course, you very hardcore shut me down on that and said, no, <laughs> these episodes were always intended to be, you know, consumed by the public masses. Well, season one of Farscape absolutely was not meant to be consumed by the public. They were internal only. I found a quote from Rockney S. O'Bannon where he said that if he had known that they were going to actually be titles that were shown, he would have done them differently. But he wasn't, you know, really looking long term and was trying to figure everything else out. So the titles, I think, were just really quick little things like, okay, this episode is about the flax, so we're going to call it the flax. <laughs> Which is baffling to me. I, I wonder if what he means is he was going to change them to something wittier later on, but didn't because because episodes are episode titles are used. They're used in print and on online for information about things. But just you get an episode like, thank God it's Friday again. And it doesn't describe anything in the episode except, oh yeah, it's the one where they always keep thinking it's it's the end of the working week. <laughs> Tomorrow's a rest day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, do do the episode titles get more clever? No. In later seasons? <laughs> no. Okay. They get more punning, which makes me more pu- very uh, well, happy. Okay. <laughs> if they're more punning, then that is more clever to me. I like puns. Puns are clever. I'm not clever. Okay, yeah, they they don't get cleverer in the way that Joss Whedon tried to do these references that may or may mean something in the episode. Okay. Yeah, I I really like the the episode titles. It it's one of the things that endears me to it. We said earlier about them not taking everything quite as seriously as another show would. (laughs) This is exactly an example of it. The the second to last episode about a creature who eats people's bones is called Bone to Be Wild. Yes, it is. Fab. Did you have any of the episode titles that you really liked when you saw them? Not really. Um, I think the the Jeremiah Crichton one I don't like because I don't get the reference. Even after reading the reference, I'm not familiar with the source material, so okay. it's not interesting to me because I just don't get it. <laughs> um, you know, the other ones... I guess they are still pretty pun. I mean, because back and back and back to the future is obviously referencing <laughs> back to the future. IET is referencing ET, a bug's life. I mean, come on. Yeah. Through the looking glass. I mean, they they do like to reference pop culture a lot in this show. Mm. And even even the that. unsubtle ones, DNA mad scientist. <laughs> and yeah, it's the one about the DNA mad scientist. Right. <laughs> Who's actually a little lab rat. Yeah. Which freaked me out. 
but okay. I think the only one on this list that I can't tell you what it's about by looking at the title is PK Tech Girl. But I'm going to assume <laughs> that maybe that's the one where we met Jelena the first time. Yeah, the PK Tech Girl. PK is Peacekeeper. Peacekeeper. Okay. <laughs> got it. I got it. Okay. And yeah, cool. it's, it's the one where they get the shield from the Giangs. Giangs? Giangs? The fire-breathing lizard dudes. Yeah. The, yeah. They breathe fire. Why didn't anybody tell me they breathe fire? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, right. me quoting a line, let's segue right into our favorite mm-hmm. lines. We've actually talked about a lot of our favorite lines already. Yeah, we've used so many of them. Um, I, I keep saying the show is really funny, and it's really good fun. It does lots of silliness. But there's some really earnest lines that just uh, I said about John doubting Aaron and the way that's delivered in, in a way that you, you really feel the respect between them. And then a, a later episode where she rescues him and Stark says to him, who's that? And he's in pain. He's been tortured. And he goes, who is she? That is the radiant hair and son. How many peacekeepers do you know in this place? And it's the fact that her last name is Sun. <laughs> he's using the word radiant is, is a really nice thing. But just the fact that he's, oh, I'm so happy to see you. You're the greatest thing I've ever seen. Oh. Little heart eyes. OTP. (laughs) Absolutely. Mm. I'm looking at my list, and I've got a fair amount on here from from Dargo. Mm. Um, You really did like him, didn't you? I did. But my my favorite Dargo line, honestly... was It's just a throwaway, very, very silly thing. And through the looking glass, John has told Dargo, you know, wait... 30 seconds except it's what is that micro arms something like that and 30 and, and Dargo's like like how how do i know and and john's like well you just count one mississippi two mississippi three mississippi and then john runs off because you know it's very time sensitive and dargo is like okay and then he just stands there by himself and he goes One Mipipipi. Two Mipipipi. <laughs> I can't even say it without laughing. Yeah. So I'm going to put the clip in so that you guys can hear Dargo doing it because he's just so serious. Mm. And he says Mipipipi. And it's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's almost a throwback to the very first episode when Crace <laughs> first comes up against Crichton. And he asks him who he is. And, and Aaron answers for him. She says, he claims to be a human from the planet Earp. <laughs> and it's just Earp, Crichton yes. mouthing at her. Earp? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hmm. yeah. Lots of the, the um, comedy comes from those character and, moments much more than just silliness and, and random stuff. Yes. Um, I, I do have a couple, you know, I'm... I'm not even going to say all of these. I'm just going to super cut them in so you guys can listen because it's it's so good. And hopefully you've actually watched the season if you're listening to this and so you will understand the context because if you take them completely out of context, it can, you know, not be funny or mm. sentimental. Um, but but all of these that I have in my list, they're either really funny or really sentimental and it's it's great. I love it. She gives me a woody. Woody. 
a human saying, I've heard you say it often, when you don't trust someone or they make you nervous, they give you willies. She gives you the willies. Perhaps I'm never destined to be happy. But you were for five glorious days. There are no guarantees, Doctor. We take each breath as if it is our last, and hope that the air is sweet. Look, I, I know I can be selfish, but given a chance, I can usually... Do what? Do the right thing? Yes. Nigel, I figure the right thing starts at the beginning of the day. Not after you've been caught. She was vague to the point that I suspect that she doesn't have a clue. My progeny were tiny, tiny and handsome, like their father. Sparky, Spanky, Fluffy, Buckwheat the 16th. Yeah, the show does a really nice line in uh, good sentiment between the characters without being weepy. <laughs> I don't know of a better word for it. Mm. Yeah, you know, you're right. I think. You get strong emotion without it being cheesy. Yeah. Which is weird coming from a show that's got <laughs> yeah, ethics absolutely. in it. You expect it to be cheesy, mm. and it's not. It's, it, I mean, yeah, there are some times that are cheesy, but it's, it's not really meant to be, and, it, and it's just good. I, really, I am really surprised at how much I like this show. And this is only season one of four. Great. Yes. Mm. It's going to be great. Is there anything else that you want to discuss about Farscape? Not about season one, but do you want to make any predictions for season two? And we'll see where we get to with them. The only thing I'm going... Well, okay. Let me stop. Backtrack just a little bit. Prediction. They're all going to survive, and they're all going to end up back on Moya. I don't know how, but it's going to happen, okay? I don't know if Talon's going to come back. That's that's the, the thing. Mm. I hope he dies, because... He's a baby. baby and to be with his mommy. <laughs> but I don't know. And then my hope, as I previously said, is that Chris comes back and Chris and John become BFFs. I want that. I want them to be a bird's <laughs> piece so bad. I do. It's probably not going to happen, but a girl can dream. Okay. And Scorpius is less evil. And you understand him? No. More. I just want Scorpius to die in a fire. Okay. But I don't think he will. Okay. Hashtag, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Right. We've had a couple of lovely pieces of listener feedback. Um, Mandy, why don't you tell us what we've had back? On Twitter, Ali um, of Lost Watch, Ali CT, who does the Lost Watch podcast, uh, listened to our Firefly episodes. And it was one where we were talking about um, shows being better at being serialized versus being episodic. And Allie said, basically, Nathan and I have just been shouting throughout the episode that Lost and Mad Men did things better. And I'm pretty sure that in that episode, we did mention Mad Men, because I know you've talked about mm. Mad Men a lot. Mm. And I remember thinking when, after the episode aired, that I wish we had brought up Lost, because absolutely, Lost is one that begins serialized from the first second that the show airs. And um, I'm really glad that, that Allie brought that up. Uh, next up, Vivian at VX, who also has a podcast of her own, uh, Burger of the Week, 
says that she wants an episode of Pop Culturally Deprived where I tell you guys all of the terrible human beings that I like, if there are any. Haha. <laughs> and you know what? You guys have already heard the Godfather episode, so you know that I'm a big fan of Michael Corleone. And so now I'm just thinking that maybe I should put together a list that every time we have a really terrible human being, and I think I may need to like asterisk that and say it doesn't necessarily have to be a human to be yeah. counted as a really terrible say, human yep. being. Um, and, and maybe I'll start a list, very short list at this point. I, I don't know that anybody's on it except for Michael Corleone. And Rachel. Um, you're right. I could absolutely put Rigel on there. Um, and they are so, basically so the same to... character, to be fair. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, what you have is you have Don Corleone with Rigel on his lap, stroking him like the kid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I need somebody with Photoshop to do that for me. <laughs> Listener, if you're wonderful at Photoshop, please do that for me. Put Rigel in Don Corleone's lap with, with, with him petting him like the kitty. <laughs> I need that in my life. And Vivian, thank you. You won't get an episode, but I will absolutely put together a list for you so that you can uh, keep up with, with who I actually like when they're terrible. And it has two people on it right now. For the rest of you, if you want to get in touch and give us your comments on this or anything else we've discussed, you can use the hashtag PCDeprived on Twitter. You can also email us using podcast at eloquentgushing.com, or you can comment on this post on eloquentgushing.com. You can also find each of us on Twitter. I'm at Mandy K. And I'm at Matthew Bose. Please also remember to rate and review us on iTunes. It's the absolute best way to help people discover the show. If you do review, please let us know. We're always excited and we want to say thank you. Uh, we've had some lovely comments up there. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. We'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived, where we'll talk about Superman the movie. And in a month, we'll talk about season two of Farscape. Until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm an astronaut. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> See, you have to do that bit earlier to get the ending. I didn't expect that. <laughs> Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, visit eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at Eloquent Gushing.